Welcome to The Bean Pod, a podcast about decentralized finance and the Beanstalk protocol. I'm your host, Rex. Before we get started, we always want to remind everyone that on this podcast, we are very optimistic about decentralized finance in general and Beanstalk in particular. With that being said, three things. First, always do your own research before you invest in anything, especially what we talk about here on the show. Second, while you're doing that research, try to find as many well-developed opposing viewpoints as possible to get the best overall picture. And third, never ever invest money that you can't afford to lose or at least be without for a while. And with that, on with the show. One of the primary goals of Ethereum is scalability. Indeed, a world computer is only useful if it's able to manage and record an ever-growing number of transactions and computations. Now, earlier this month, the Ethereum network completed its much-anticipated transition from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. Along with other benefits, the merge is promised to make the network more scalable by removing the congestion created by proof-of-work consensus mechanisms. But that's not to say that proof-of-stake has been the only scaling solution under development. Ethereum's Layer 2 blockchains offer scalable speed and capacity by performing transactions off Layer 1, then bundling and recording those transactions back at the mainnet. The underlying mechanisms of these L2 solutions, known as rollups, generally fall into two categories, optimistic and zero-knowledge. To learn more about the latter, Mod Publius and I are spending this episode talking with Tigril Maharimov, a senior researcher at Scroll. Scroll is a ZK EVM-based rollup, and together we're going to discuss what that actually means and how this project can help make Ethereum faster and more robust without compromising security or transactional validity. Tagrul, thank you so much for joining us on podcast. Hello, thanks for having me on. And a big welcome back to both Publius and Mod. Thank you for having me. Hey, Rex, thanks for having me as well. Great to have both of you. So, Tagrul, how about you kick us off by kind of setting the stage around scaling and zero knowledge proofs? Okay, so uh, let's start with scaling first. So there's not really a, a clearly defined definition of what scaling is. People use dif different ways to describe what scaling is. W what I would like to describe scaling as is a, is a system which in increases the throughput without increasing the hardware requirements. So essentially, because, because you could scale the system infinitely just by increasing the hardware requirements. But in that case, you just have less and less people who are capable of running the nodes. And the question is, how do you scale the system without uh, increasing the hardware requirements? Because naturally, it sounds like the only thing you can do is just crank up the settings and process more transactions. And there are multiple ways to do it. So. The original way to do it was sharding, which Ethereum first pursued from like 2016 or 2015. And that's when you split the blockchain essentially in a bunch, uh, into a bunch of chains that are run in parallel and just communicate with each other through uh, the same protocol. In Ethereum's case, the security would have been shared because essentially the, the nodes who were running the, those shards were the same as the nodes who were running the main chain. But not all of them would run every single 
shard chain. Some would be allocated to different chains. But that has quite a lot of different problems in it because essentially because you split the committee sizes into smaller uh, into smaller sizes, you get less security, etc. And it's also quite problematic to compose. And that's when uh, off-chain scaling came in. So first it was Lightning Network and payment channels. Then we got Plasma, which was the original vision of how you would scale Ethereum via off-chain processing. But that had also a few issues. Specifically, it had a thing called mass exit problem. It's where you essentially attempt to exit the chain fraudulently without providing the data so nobody can uh, can basically challenge you on what, you, what what the exit is. And then the first zero-knowledge rollup was born. So the paradox, and the funny thing about zero-knowledge rollups, they're not actually privacy-preserving. They just use zero-knowledge proofs. But essentially, like if you take Scroll, Starknet, any other zero-knowledge rollup, it's not actually privacy-preserving. But the the cool thing that the modern zero knowledge proofs have is something called uh, is a property that we call succinctness. It basically it's basically a property that allows you to verify uh, the transaction in less amount of time that it would take to re-execute it, or or a certain computation it doesn't have to be a transaction, but in that in our case, it applies to transactions. So it makes sense to use zero knowledge proofs as a way to process transactions off chain and then just put the uh, zero knowledge proof on chain and uh, for the smart contract to verify it and say, oh yeah, great, everything is fine. And uh, what was also interesting is that a few years ago, it was impossible to do that for something like EVM because the computational overhead of doing that would have made the throughput negligible, like more, less than one TPS even if it was technically possible. But thanks to a lot of breakthroughs that happened in the past few years, we're now at a stage where we have working systems live on Ethereum that allow us to process arbitrary transactions off-chain. And that's how we got here. Zero-knowledge proofs specifically, what is the opportunity? You hinted at it there just a second ago, you know, about that succinctness. Talk us through zero-knowledge proofs and the, the opportunity that they provide? So zero knowledge proof is a cryptographic system that allows you to prove that, that you can satisfy a certain function or an algorithm without actually revealing what data you use to say, satisfy it or, re, or only revealing part of the data. So let's say you go to a supermarket and you buy some beer and the the cashier asks you for a proof that you're over 18. So if there was a centralized database that held all the IDs and all the information about the IDs, you can essentially prove with the zero knowledge proofs that you're over 18 without revealing who you are or what your name is, et cetera, et cetera, or your social security number, et cetera, et cetera. And the cool thing about them is they've been around for more than 40 years. I think the first paper about, no, a bit less. The first paper was published in 1983. And actually two of the people who published it 
currently work in crypto. It's Sylvia Mikkeli, who works on Algorand, and Shafi Goldfasser, who's an advisor at Starkware. And um, basically, at first, it was a system, an interactive system, where basically, I was, let's say, I was trying to prove something to you, and it was an interactive system when you would challenge me, and we would go back and forth until you were convinced. But then there came up a certain uh, scheme that allowed you to transform an interactive proof into a in non-interactive proof where I could just prove it to you without you having to challenge me. It's called a Fiat Shamir transformation. And uh, that's how non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs started. And from there, they just kept improving and improving until we got to SNARKs. SNARKs stand for, stand for succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge. So, and it doesn't really matter what the rest of the words mean. The only thing that matters in here is that they're non-interactive, so they don't really require you to interact with another person to prove that you're correct. And secondly, they're uh, succinct, which what I already described. And you could theoretically use them to prove anything. So even an enormous amount of computation can be proven in, in a very small amount of time. So let's say uh, a Planck proof takes a few milliseconds to verify, and that can prove, let's see, gigabytes of processing and hours of processing. But obviously that would be very expensive to prove, so we use it on more viable things, and we apply the whole scheme to use it for, for processing transactions and proving the correctness of, of the fact that you proved that you executed the transaction correctly. Yeah. So what you're saying is to go back to your, your beer analogy for the sake of zero knowledge proof, it's the same amount of, let's say, um, information that's provided outwardly to prove that I am over 18 as it would be to prove my entire financial history, despite the fact that, you know, those two questions have very different answers in terms of the amount of actual information used to compile whatever that answer is from an outward facing standpoint. It's just, it's yes, I'm over 18 or yes, I qualify for whatever, you know, financial requirement there is. It's just that it's that very simple outward facing component. So it depends on a, on a concrete proof system. So there are some snarks and starks that uh, are not constant. So the more computation it takes to prove, the more computation it takes to verify, but it's typically sublinear. So let's say if it takes five minutes to prove something versus a minute to prove something, it's not going to be one second versus five seconds. It's going to be more like one second versus one and a half seconds. Uh, but but some are near constant, so I don't think there's any proof system that is completely constant because there are, there are certain things that that will depend on. But let's say if 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 the number of public inputs, and by public inputs I mean the inputs into the functions that are not hidden. So so essentially zero knowledge proof takes two types of inputs: one which are public inputs. And those are the inputs that we share. So let's say you and I both know what they are. And then there are private inputs, the ones that I don't reveal to you. So you can use the public inputs to verify it, but you can't use my private inputs. Those are hidden. 
And in most of the SNARKs, for example, the, the, the systems that I described, the proof system that I described, the more inputs you have, the public inputs you have, the, the, the more expensive the verifying is, but it's going to be negligible in terms of how much the difference. So you can consider it to be constant. Gotcha. So let's transition more specifically to scroll. So how does scroll fit inside of this uh, zero knowledge proof part of the scalability ecosystem? So uh, first of all, let me just describe what scroll is so, so people have a rough understanding. So scroll is a zero knowledge rollup that uses a snark uh, to prove the correctness of the execution that was done off chain. And scroll is specifically ZKVM based. And by ZKVM, I mean that our proof system can prove the computation that was done in AVM. So let's say you can take the, it's a bit modified, so we can't really prove the correctness of Ethereum transactions, but but those modifications don't really affect the code, uh, the, the smart contracts, and they are just efficiency improvements. So ideally, so uh, you could potentially just remove the modifications that we've done and prove the correctness of Ethereum transactions with our with our system that we use and uh, so essentially what we do is you would send us a certain number of transactions we would compute them execute them prove their correctness and then commit them to ethereum which basically means that they're finalized without ethereum having to re-execute all those transactions i see so there's a lot of talk about bridges and other similar systems to help manage the relationship between L1 and L2. How does scroll relate to systems like optimism or, or some of the other bridges that are that are out there? Firstly, uh, it's, it's a bit of a misconception that rollups, uh, there's a lot of misconception about how rollups work, etc. But rollup is essentially a side chain that has a validating bridge that connects it to Ethereum. And what I mean by validating bridge, it's the bridge that uh, verifies the correctness of the execution that was done by the side chain. In our case, we use zero knowledge proofs, so it's explicit. You can only finalize a certain block if the execution was correct. In case of optimistic rollups, it's implicit where you assume that in case nobody challenged the commitment within a certain period of time, it, that means that basically it is correct. And uh, obviously there are a few more nuances. So for example, you couldn't just connect Solana to Ethereum and call Solana a rollup because there are a few more properties that a rollup needs to have. So for example, a rollup needs to inherit the censorship resistant guarantees from the underlying base layer, so in this case, Ethereum. So let's say Solana, if Solana censors your transaction, you can't force the inclusion of your transaction through Ethereum, whereas in a rollup, you, you, you should be able to do that. So there are certain nuances that, that basically make rollups unique. But overall, the goal is to have a bridge between Ethereum and a rollup 
essentially rollups are the, the most trust minimized way you can communicate between two different chains. And obviously, uh, optimistic rollups have a bit of a different trust assumptions, but all, all both of them are quite minimal. Minimal. So in the case of, of an optimistic rollup, you just need one honest node that is capable of challenging the the proof within seven days, or depends on how you configure it. Whereas for us, you just need to trust that the zero knowledge proof system that you're using is secure. So when I think about use cases, what are what are some specific use cases? If I was so if I was looking to utilize Scroll, how would I implement it? Where would it be most useful? Walk us through a little bit of a an, an opportunity there. So I I have an article coming about it, and basically there are the rollups on Ethereum can be used for two different reasons. Either they extend the throughput of Ethereum. So let's say the demand, uh, currently the demand for Ethereum is more than what it can supply in terms of block space. And secondly, it's to extend the feature. So for example, something like Starknet uh, adds a new VM to, in a trust minimized way to Ethereum. So you can use Cairo, which is a completely different system to EVM and you build different smart contracts there. We fall into the first category. So our goal is to extend Ethereum's throughput. We don't really add a lot of new features. We we are looking into a few minor ones, but the idea is that from the user's perspective, the difference between using and, uh, and developers as well. So from the, the user's and developer's perspective, the difference between using Ethereum and scroll is gonna be unnoticeable. So in an ideal world, you would be interacting with scroll and you wouldn't even know that you're interacting with scroll rather than Ethereum. And so essentially we in increase the throughput, but aside from that, uh, Ethereum, because Ethereum is quite limited in terms of how much computational cycles it can provide, so essentially, I can't have a transaction, a, a smart contract that requires you to spend 10 million gas because you would be paying thousands of dollars per transaction for it. Whereas on rollups, because of it's done off chain, it should be relatively cheap. And so you could have uh, different applications that weren't really possible to build on Ethereum because of the cost that it would take to use them. For example, something like uh, uh an order book exchange for example you could potentially build it on scroll and it will be quite cheap to interact with whereas on ethereum it would probably cost you like hundreds of dollars per transaction gotcha so i want to want to hand it over quickly and give uh publius and mod just a minute i don't know if there's anything that you guys wanted to ask about or, or talk through. I still have a couple questions left, but I uh, want to want to hand it over to the two of you for a minute. Yeah, I, I wanted to start with a question, uh, Togrel. Um, from my understanding, from what you're saying, is that Scroll's objective is mostly scaling and not privacy. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, and and I see on your on your website you have that roadmap uh, across different phases. Can you maybe take us through it and explain to us what each phase uh, is for, or you know what what do these what do these phases mean? So, so uh, phase one is ZKVM proof of concept, and what that means is 
we have a minimal viable implementation of ZKVM that functions. So currently we can prove that, transact uh, that a transaction was executed correctly, but we still can't prove all the opcodes. So there are some opcodes that are basically, you trust us that we can prove but because we're we're in a testnet phase currently it doesn't really matter so it doesn't affect the security of your phones and then uh, phase two is going to be zkvm testnet so it's a fully fledged zkvm implementation that can prove all the transactions and uh, all, uh, all all the opcodes and you don't have to trust us in any way so you're essentially uh, send the transaction off, we prove that it's correct, we put it on the testnet and it's fine. And then phase three is proof outsourcing. So what we have come up with is that you could essentially scale the throughput of the product, increase the throughput of the protocol by just parallelizing the proofs. So what that means is, let's say you produce 10 blocks in a chain. Instead of computing the proofs sequentially, you can outsource the proof uh, proof computation to 10 different uh, nodes, or in, in our case, we call them rollers, to compute uh, the proofs for them. And what it allows you to do is essentially in the same time that it would take you to compute one validity proof, you can compute 10 proofs for different for 10 different blocks. And essentially, uh, we have a system which would allow us to scale with the number of provers that we have in the network. And that's what it means by layer two proof outsourcing. And ZKVM testnet is essentially once we have all the kings and all the bugs sorted and the implementation audited and everything like that will finally launch on the testnet where you can use your real funds rather than imaginary uh, testnet funds. And phase five is decentralized sequencer. So, uh, so decentralized sequencer means that instead of a single entity building the blocks, you would have a permissionless system where anybody can be able to build blocks the same way you can in Ethereum, just run the validator and you can build the blocks. But the, the problem with L2s and rollups specifically, it's quite complex to design a system which is decentralized because you don't really want to introduce the overheads because you're already paying Ethereum essentially for its consensus. And you don't wanna just add another consensus on top of it. It's just a bit wasteful. So how do you decentralize the protocol without uh, adding the consensus and keeping the overhead to the minimum? So it's currently an active research. We have some ideas. So it's not something that is impossible to solve. It, it's quite solvable. It's just the, the problem is uh, that how uh, we need to perfect it in, in a sense. We need to make it as efficient as possible before we launch it. So that will be the last phase of the current roadmap. And, and right now you're on phase two, correct? So the phase two should be coming soon. So currently we have the ZKVM and and soon we're going to have the testnet fully functional, a public testnet. And without adding any pressure, when do you think the phases will take long or when will you know normal day-to-day -day users be able to use uh, Scroll? So you can, uh, we currently have a pre-alpha testnet live, which basically is 
a permission testnet where you can sign up with on our website and we we let people in batches to interact with it so what you can do is we forked ethereum because we don't really want to cloak ethereum uh, and basically you you can you can interact bridge between the fork of ethereum and our rollup and also we forked uniswap and you can use uniswap and swap between uh, the testnet tokens but the full uh, testnet which will be public meaning that you don't have to sign up anywhere or you don't have to ask our permission or anything should be coming soon i don't really want to commit to an exact date because you know how dates work in crypto if you commit to something you're just guaranteed to for for, 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 for to have a postponement so yeah but it should be quite soon Publius, anything you want to jump in with? I, I even thought of a, a quick question as we were talking, but I want to want to give you a, the open mic for a second. Appreciate it, Rex. Um, would love to ask you kind of what the difference between Starks and Snarks are, and why Scroll chose to use Starks, and do they plan on using Starks forever, or um, you know what is the three to five year plan for kind of where Starks and Snarks are going? Uh, so, so the difference between Snarks and Starks was was that uh, basically it's in in the Starks name. So uh, uh, Starks stands for scalable, transparent arguments of knowledge, and what they were is transparent. So with Snarks originally, you had to have a trusted setup. What it meant is you had like uh, to have a certain uh, cryptographic system where where you would ha have like different computers participate together to compute uh, the proving key and the uh, and the verifier key and what that means but in that system at least one of them had to be honest so you had some trust whereas right now there, there's uh, some snarks don't need that anymore so for example the snark that we're using is halo 2 it doesn't really need that it's transparent but we still refer to the snark as a snark because it's based on a on a snark that wasn't transparent even though there is an argument for the fact that uh, a transparent snark is a stark so currently there's not much difference between a lot of modern snarks and starks but originally the difference was that starks they don't really have to have trusted setup. Thank you. Um, and kind of, you know, I see in your roadmap here, um, you know, kind of the vision, you know, post mainnet is, uh, as you mentioned, a decentralized sequencer and a more efficient EVM. When you say more efficient EVM, is that improving kind of, uh, you know, are, is that improving the actual runtime of the, um, you know, the Stark, uh, you know, operations it's, or the snark operations itself, or is that in actually, you know, being able to, you know, process the EVM, you know, uh, implement the opcodes in more efficient ways? Uh, both. So you could optimize the circuit and also the process that you used. And also there are a few ways where you can optimize the execution time. So for example, uh, we have been looking into and also we're not the only one uh, like a few a few people are looking into it is uh, is is an approach to execution called optimistic uh concurrency the parallelization so what that means is you can 
basically execute multiple transactions in parallel optimistically and assume that they don't touch the same storage state slots. And if they do touch the same slots, you just revert to sequential execution the way it works now. And somebody uh, called Brock, uh, I think he works at Nansen, already did a proof of concept of that a year ago. And I think in his rudimentary test, he got a 5x improvement in terms of execution performance. So that's one of the things that could be improved outside the zero knowledge stuff. And also there are a few other things like the way the state storage works, statelessness, et cetera, that we're also looking into. That's incredibly impressive. Really crazy to hear, uh, you know, kind of what's on the horizon. For sure. Um, so you talked about having outsourced rollers a minute ago. And are there any concerns with working with outsourced rollers and, and the when you talked about taking transactions and, and moving them from sequential to parallel, um, it sounds like there's some agreement risk in that. And, and do you have any, any concerns around that and how to manage them? Uh, the only risk in, in execution parallelization is that you can potentially expose yourself to DDoS attacks when essentially a lot of transactions try to touch the same state without denoting that they're trying to touch the same sure. state so a similar thing to what happened in Solana a few months ago where it went down because there was an nft drop and a lot of transactions were trying to touch the same storage slot and basically the the, the, the nodes crashed because of it wasn't because of that but it was re, the result of that and that's the only concern but you could you could mitigate that by price by by basically setting different prices on basically assume that let's say if you denote what slots you're going to touch inside the transaction and then uh, when you execute it turns out that you touch an additional slot the cost of touching that additional slot and storage should be priced differently to what you price the slots that uh, that you you actually denoted and so you could we're, we're thinking about basically pricing them in a way where which disincentivizes attacks like that so it can only happen uh, because of uh, uncertainty so let's say if i'm interacting with a smart contract and i don't know what the outcome is going to be so i don't know what slots it's going to end up touching in that case that's fine it's only problematic if it's a targeted attack on a specific slot one more question um, will the, on the rollers, uh, will they be able to be, uh, you know, trustless and kind of permissionlessly deployed? Yeah, they, should, they, they will be permissionless. That's incredible. Um, is there, a, will there be any incentive to be, you know, run a roller? Yeah, so uh, we're currently looking into a model similar to what Ethereum is going to deploy eventually, which is called proposer builder separation, where you have a relatively centralized set of uh, nodes that have like quite expensive hardware that can compute and extract the maximum MEV they can from from a batch of transactions and then they bid and essentially what they do is they compete with one another 
by bidding to the to the leader of the round uh, of the slot in Ethereum to be picked as the ones to be inserted into the block in, in into the uh, consensus block and so uh, essentially uh, that allows you as a proposer the leader of the round essentially of the slot to uh, collect MEV without actually MEV profits without actually extracting MEV that work is done by the builder so in, in this case it will be similar so a sequencers or sequencers will will extract the MEV and then they will share the profits with the rollers and also obviously transaction fees are the other uh, part of the equation so kind of you know when you know this this plan as we've described you know before we decentralize the sequencer but after we have kind of the rollers in existence you know users will be submitting transactions to you know kind of uh the sequencer entity which will then basically say you know i'm proposing these blocks the rollers will kind of all compete to kind of win the bid in order to process that block you know which will take some amount of time and in the process the proposer is you know continually to build more blocks on top of that oh sorry i, I was describing a, a scenario where both the sequencers and and the and the uh, and the rollers are both central uh, decentralized so essentially how how it will work is you select let's say five sequencers per also bear in mind it's an active research so we might change the model completely by the time it's released so uh, let's say you select five sequencers per slot and they compete by outbidding each other and there's one roller who's responsible for picking the highest bid and that's how it will work in a centralized scenario it's relatively easy what we could do is something similar to what optimism does is uh but optimism doesn't have rollers so they don't have to, uh, to incentivize the rollers so what they do is all the M extracted mev goes to public goods funding because the sequencer is centralized and operating by them and they don't really want to keep the profits from the mev extracted and what we could do is we could essentially uh, give all the extracted MEV profits away to the rollers that are computing the validity proofs. And that would essentially act as an incentive prior to decentralization of the sequencers. Awesome. So, I mean, in the case you just described, the sequencer, or you have kind of N rollers in one sequencer? Yeah. And then the sequence. Okay, awesome. But in the fully fledged model, um, will the will the rollers themselves kind of become the proposer, or is there still kind of two separate roles where there's like you know a group of block, you know, uh, sequencers and a group of rollers? Uh, in the second model, essentially, the 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 sequencers will be the builders and the rollers will be the proposers. Yeah. Thank you so much for, you know, walking us through that. Really excited to, you know, hear where further research goes on that end. This is all, you know, incredibly insightful for all of us. So thank you so much. No worries, of course. You're more than welcome. So two questions that kind of linger in my mind whenever we're talking to any project. The first is security concerns. It's it's something we can't get around right now. And so when, when you think about security concerns, first scroll what what goes through your mind what's what are you and your team working on to manage right now the bridge the, the main concern i think for any roll-up is the bridge and how do you minimize the probability of bugs happening on the smart contract level 
and then if we're looking forward like a few years forward after let's say everything has been battle tested and we know that there are no obvious bugs in the system how do you decentralize upgradability because especially for our project obviously if if you choose to take a different path you don't really have that issue so let's say few labs uh, when they launched uh, Fuel V1, they didn't have upgradability because they were like, yeah, if if we launch another a second version, we'll just deploy a new contract. But we can't really do that because our goal is to be EVM equivalent. So in case something changes in Ethereum, we need to be able to keep up with it. And therefore, it has to be upgradable all the time. And how do you have an upgradable system that is also trustless and decentralized. That's probably long-term the biggest problem that we, we are looking into and we're trying to solve. Short-term, it's going to be the bridge. And I think what we're going to do, it's not really finalized yet, but I think the approach is going to be to limit the deposit it's uh, initially so how the starknet works is every day they just increase uh, the, the deposit limit by a, a certain amount and that guarantees that in case something goes wrong you don't lose five billion but instead you you lose a few million which is a problem but it's not a catastrophic problem which can basically threaten the, the future of your entire project that's no, really insightful. And I mean, I feel like that is something we're hearing about so frequently right now, bridge exploits or bugs. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's pretty insightful in terms of looking at that near term, that near term threat. The other, the other thing that I, you know, I love to ask about is the future and you've already hinted at, you know, future capabilities, anything else you want to cover in terms of what the project is looking at in terms of either capabilities or partnerships, um, new features, anything that comes to mind? L3s, which are rollups deployed on top of rollups, because I, I, I think uh, at this point, it's clear that a single rollup is incapable of handling all the potential demand it might have. So we would need a way to scale out even more. And for a lot of applications, you don't really need composability. So let's say if you're building an NFT-based game, you don't really need that composability where you have to interact with different applications, etc. You can just be in your segregated uh, system somewhere else, just infrequently interacting and bridging. So let's say if you need to add funds, etc. And for stuff like that, we're working on L3s and how to make L3s viable because you can just deploy a rollup on top of a rollup. It's fine for some use cases, but for the majority of the use cases, you don't need really need that level of security. So what you can have is a Validium, which is essentially a, a zero knowledge rollup that doesn't post the data on Ethereum, but it's then instead uses some other data availability solution to store uh, the data. So let's say you can use Celestia or you can use something else to store the data, or you can have your own proprietary solution, proprietary solution to uh, store the data for uh, your L3. 
And so, yeah, I think I think the future is going to be about L3s and how you make the deployment of them easy. So essentially, ideally, what we would like is that you can just with a few clicks of a button launching your L3s and you don't really have to deal with bootstrapping the sequencers, everything and all, all those problems that you shouldn't really bother with. As an application developer, you should just bother with your own application. And so we're working towards making it a reality. But, but that's a long-term thing. Let's get the uh, scroll on the mainnet first before we, we, we start, start basically launching that. Hey, no, nothing wrong with looking three steps down the road. That's really exciting. I mean, I feel like we're just getting to the point where we're having more and more conversations about L2s, be looking at L3s. That's, um, I like that. That's, that's, that's the future. Hey, Rex, do you mind if I ask one more question here? So why are the Starks you use not privacy preserving? It's, it's, it's not because they're not, they, they can be, there's zero knowledge. Oh, just one note. We have removed the zero knowledge component of our proof system because it adds unnecessary overhead and because we're not privacy preserving it, we don't really need that. But you can potentially return it back and it's not going to be an issue. But the problem is how do you do general purpose uh, computation that is privacy preserving but simultaneously efficient? It's not really something that is quite common at the moment. So you could, so for example, secret network do it, but they, they use a tr trusted enclave. So in Intel SGX to do it, and we don't really want to do that. And also because our goal is to be as similar to Ethereum as possible, Ethereum is not really privacy preserving. So we're not really concerned with that on an L2 level. On an L3 level, we might build some privacy preserving version of scroll or something along those lines. But on an L2 level, our goal is to be just extension of Ethereum that allows users to transact and interact with Ethereum in a trust minimized way without paying an arm and a leg for a transaction. I had one more question on my end. So Togrel, you mentioned that on the testnet you have uh, Uniswap. Uh, as one of the supported uh, maybe apps that can work with. And I understand as well that other scaling solutions, they have certain apps that, that they support. Is this how it's going to be in the future that whenever there is an app that needs to be, for example, supported or worked through Scroll, that Scroll has to support that app or will it be that anyone can you know, interact in the future with Scroll through any, any, other, any other app? Yeah, uh, it's a Uniswap fork, by the way. It's not a Uniswap, just, just, just uh, so uh, essentially, um, no, you, you don't. It's a permissionless system. It's the same as Ethereum. You just have to pay the transaction fees to deploy on on Scroll, and that's it. You don't really have to ask our permission or partner with us, or go through us, or even talk to us, or know who we are. You just the same way <laughs> as a developer on Ethereum, you don't really need to know who Vitalik is and or what Ethereum is. You just need to press a button deploy and that's it, your application is on Ethereum. So no, it's just right now because we don't want to overwhelm the current implementation that we have and also the servers that we've built. We just want to take it step by step where we first of all, firstly don't allow people to deploy their own contracts. 
just to see how the system works with our own contracts. And then once we make sure that everything is functioning as intended, we will open up the system. So anybody is free to deploy their own contracts and do whatever they want. So to grill out, I want to turn it over to you. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any closing thoughts, anything we haven't covered that you want to talk through? The only thing that I can add is that uh, it, it, it's going back to our to the question that you asked previously is I think that in the future this the, the, the a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, the the user interactions and like a lot of our security concerns are not going to be focused on specific blockchains so let's say Ethereum Solana etc it's more going to be focused on the bridges and so I think in the future we will stop thinking in in a way oh yeah it's ethereum we're going to be thinking in a way oh it's a nomad bridge or oh it's 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 a scroll bridge or whatever and yeah it's just an interesting thought because because i th i think at, at this point it's pretty clear that there's not a single chain that can facilitate all the demands of the users and so uh, essentially we are in a multi-chain future where multiple chains will exist in their parallel universes and have their own ecosystems, etc. And the main concern, because that's the thing that is the easiest to break, are going to be the bridges rather than the protocols themselves. So I'm, I'm just going back to kind of the, the part where you said it's a, there's a function with private and public variables. Is it that the cost of storing and using private variables is way more expensive than having public variables or what i'm just trying to conceptualize why the privacy is so is more expensive or more difficult but the private variables don't mean that it's actually private it just means that essentially what you do is well, let's say you execute the transaction and you have the public inputs into the uh, you compute the proof and then you have public input. So you say the previous state, the hash of the transaction that you published, et cetera, et cetera, that you executed. But all the, all the steps that satisfy the, the correctness of execution of that transaction. So let's say at this point, you're, uh, after, I don't know, three steps, your stack was this, that. The, 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 the protocol that is verifying it doesn't have to know about it. So you, it's basically just an additional overhead in terms of storage and uh, and l latency that is not really necessary. So uh, you, we hide it, but it doesn't mean that you, if you get the transaction, you can't recreate the same uh, input. So it's not privacy preserving where you can't recreate something or extract the data from the uh, from the original transaction. It's just we hide the intermediate state of the transaction because it's unnecessary for you to know it when you're verifying it. Thank you so much for explaining that. No worries. Well, this is fantastic, Degrill. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Absolutely, and Mod and Publius, as always, thank you for your time too. Thank you, Rex. Thank you both. You know, everything that was said here today was incredibly insightful and, you know, truly learned a lot. So thank you for taking the time to, you know, come talk with us today. You can learn more about Scroll on their website at scroll.io and find both the project and to grill on Twitter. 
The Bean Pod is a production of Beanstalk Farms, a decentralized autonomous organization. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Medium, Discord, and our home on the web at bean.money. You can also find me on Twitter at RexTheBean. And as a final reminder, this podcast is not financial advice. Thanks again for listening.